You guys sent your questions in, and today we're going to answer them. It's Q&A, ladies and gentlemen. Let's do this. everybody and god bless welcome to the barefoot bible podcast a grungy guide to christianity i am your host arturo moreno and for today's episode we're going to be doing a q a last week we posted on social media that we would be taking questions from our listeners that i would be answering to the best of my abilities and you guys totally delivered we got a lot of great questions and I am so excited to be able to get to answer all of them for you. But before that, if you are joining us for the first time, then I would like to welcome you. This is the Barefoot Bible Podcast, a grungy guide to Christianity, the weekly Christian podcast where we will be discussing things such as theology, apologetics, faith issues, and so much more from the most raw and real perspective possible, hence why I called it a grungy guide to Christianity. However, if you are a returning listener, then hey, welcome back and thank you so much for your support. If you guys haven't already, I just want to go ahead and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You're not going to want to miss a single episode as we unpack all sorts of topics found within the Bible. So make sure that you guys are subscribed. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Now, without further ado, let's get to these questions. So some of the questions that I'm going to be reading do have the names of the people. However, others don't. So if a name is attached to the question, I will give it. But if not, I will just be saying the question directly. To give you guys a bit of an idea of how this Q&A is going to work, I'll be answering questions as effectively as possible. But if I see while answering the opportunity to expand on a particular subject being addressed, I will do so for the sake of anybody who may not be well informed in that topic. I never want to make the assumption that everyone knows what I'm talking about. So for those of you listening for your questions, please expect that with the understanding of who I am speaking to alongside yourself. Also, while listening during your first time, or if you are listening to this episode more than once and you want to go back to a specific question, I will be putting the timestamps for the start of each question in the show notes. So you will have those available for your convenience. The first question that we have comes from Carmen. And Carmen asks, Why is it when people say Jesus is for everyone, they only mean the people that they truly believe are meant to be saved, and is that right of them to do? Mm. To answer the latter question first, the answer is no. People cannot decide who is worthy to be a Christian. There is only one person who can, and that is God the Father. And you want to know what he says about who's worthy? Nobody is. And that's kind of the whole point of the gospel and why the gospel is truly good news. The main reason why someone would do that, first of all, is just a lack of understanding of the gospel message and pride of the human heart. If anyone tries to say something like that, all you have to do is tell them the simple gospel, which is this. Man once was in perfect union with God, but because man sinned, they were separated from God and deserved the due punishment which is death. 
So God, in his kindness, sent his son to earth as a new man, or as the new Adam, to die in the place of all humanity so that whoever believes in him, and that is, believes in him as their personal savior and declares him as Lord over their life, they could be brought back into perfect union with God. This means that his Holy Spirit is able to be dwelt within us to aid us in our time on earth and when that time comes to an end, we are also able to be rescued to new and everlasting life alongside the Father in a new heaven and a new earth after the end of the age. No human is deserving of the gospel. That's why the gospel is there. But God is that good. So, Carmen, I hope that answers your question well. Thank you very much for your question. The next question that we have is, is it okay to have sex with my girlfriend? No. Now, some might say that the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, and that is correct. It doesn't. However, Jesus painted a picture of what holy sexuality looks like in the eyes of God. Some people may point to the laws concerning sexual immorality in Leviticus, but Jesus summed it up very simply. He said in Mark 10, verses 6 through 8, But from the beginning of creation, and he quotes Genesis here, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This one statement covers what is holy and proper as far as sexuality is concerned. Anything that cannot fit under that format is not blessed. A man holds fast to his wife, meaning that the man consummates the marriage by having sex with his wife, not his girlfriend, not a girlfriend with her boyfriend. And this also means that any personal sexual acts outside of that are prohibited. Acts such as masturbation, bestiality, and naturally, since marriage is defined by Jesus as being between a male and a female, homosexuality are all prohibited as they are not sexual acts within a holy and sanctified marriage between a male and a female. So to reiterate the answer to your question, it is not okay to have sex with your girlfriend. It is not okay to have sex with your boyfriend if you are a girl. It is okay to have sex with your wife or with your husband within the biblically defined union of marriage. Jesus made it very simple. Thank you so much for your question. And this next question that we have comes from Chaz. And Chaz says, we know that sexual sin is separated in the Bible almost as if it's ranked differently. Are there any other sins set apart like that? The only ones I have seen are sexual sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which isn't really clear anyways. Well, first we know that sin is sin and there isn't lesser or greater sin. It's more that some sins have different consequences in our lives than others might. Ultimately, and I'm saying this more for anyone listening who is young in the Lord, sin results in death. There is no purgatory where you wait in a spiritual timeout before moving on. There is no temporary atonement system like in the Old Testament. Sin results in death, and thus we as believers should work to separate ourselves from it as much as possible in this life. For any of you who don't know what is being referred to here when Chaz says sexual sin is separated in the Bible, that's because sexual sin has a uniqueness to it that other sins don't. Paul clarifies that in 1 Corinthians 6.18, which says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And this does make a clear distinction 
from other sins like Chaz pointed out in his question, as it is the only sin that is committed against your own body. Now, are other sins separated or ranked differently? Well, no, they aren't ranked, but there are sins mentioned alongside sexual immorality that are viewed by Paul as sins that are especially bad to have among other believers, most likely because of the poor examples that they set amongst the body. The reason why sexual sin gets treated the way it does is likely because it is a sin against your own body. How? Well, Paul goes on to say, do you not know that your bodies are temples for God? When we commit sexual sin, something happens to us spiritually, but also physically, which directly affects our bodies. There is no other sin that has this effect, which is why sexual immorality specifically gets as much attention as it does. It even has more extreme consequences for us here on earth than most other sins seem to for this reason. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, that would be someone who slanders people or is a gossip, a drunkard or a swindler, that would be a con artist. Not even to eat with such a one, Paul says. So Paul tells us, Chaz, that these things alongside sexual immorality are to be handled firmly in such a manner as to not even associate or share a meal with someone who claims to be a believer who sins in this way. And it is likely because these sins specifically go hand in hand with the sinful nature of man, which we are stripped of during salvation. Thus, if someone is claiming to be a believer and unrepentantly walks in these sins, Paul essentially views them as liars who slander the name of Christ. Now, you might ask with me saying all this, you know, don't we all struggle with sin and sometimes these sins specifically? Yes, because we are humans. But it's important that we make the distinction that struggling with sin and the flesh and unrepentantly walking in blatant sinful habits are quite different. And that's what Paul's referring to here. Again, he's not talking about people of the world. He's talking about people in the body and not those who are struggling with these things, but those who are unrepentantly and habitually walking in them. So Chaz, I hope this answers your question well. I will note that while you didn't exactly ask about it, I would love to expand more on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit since you brought it up, but for time's sake, I can't touch on it in this episode. Lord willing, the next time that I do a Q&A, I will touch on it, or maybe I'll touch on it in another episode regarding the Holy Spirit. Who knows? But hey, man, thank you so much for the question. Moving on. This next one comes from Isaac, and Isaac says, Can you explain 1 John 5? 16 through 17. What is the sin that leads to death and vice versa? And why does he seem to repeat himself at the end of his statement, he being John? Well, let's look at the text so we all understand what's being referred to here. And uh, for any of you wondering, by the way, I am reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. That is my preferred version. If you enjoy that and want to follow along, but don't have an ESV, you can download the YouVersion Bible app or go to the YouVersion website and read for free while you listen on Bible.com. Now, here's the verse here, and once again, this is 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, bro. So at first glance, I will admit this is incredibly confusing, and I could see why you'd wonder so much about it. Firstly, I'll answer why John repeats himself, and simply put, he's not great at speech. If you read Acts chapter 3, you'll see how the Pharisees observe Peter and John after arresting them in the temple. They note that they were ordinary men with no formal education. And John speaks in a way that can be very circular, it can be very emotionally driven, and thus very confusing. His manuscripts actually contain the most basic Greek in comparison to the rest of the New Testament manuscripts that we have. So essentially, his literary skills were equal to a modern elementary school kid. So that's why he kind of seems like he's talking around in circles. He repeats himself there at the end of the verse. And I just want to make sure you understand. He talks like that in pretty much all of his letters, including his gospel. So I completely get where you're coming from. But on the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't, this is actually metaphorical. He clarifies later in the passage that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Well, literally sin results in death, so this doesn't make sense when you're viewing at it literally, but when you are looking at it metaphorically, we see it all come together. So how can sin not lead to death? And to understand that, we got to look at what Paul says about sins in Romans. We're going to be going to Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, where Paul says, well, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that had promised me life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, sin that doesn't lead to death is sin that when is committed shows us how horrible sin actually is, which is why we ought to pray for those who experience this, that they may come to realize how all destructive sin is and whatever sin it is they're committing at that moment, and recognize their need to hand it over to our Savior Jesus. It is by the person sinning that they realize the error of their ways. So in a sense, that sin has led them to life, which is the realization that they need to repent. So what is the sin that leads to death? Well, when we keep the metaphor in mind, sin that leads to death has to be habitual, unrepentant sin, which if you go back to my previous explanation on sexual immorality, 
you will see where I showed that Paul instructs the body to cast members living in habitual sin out and to disassociate oneself from them. When taking this level of action, the reason why John is saying you do not pray for them is because you don't want to pray for them to wake up. You'd rather let them continue to stubbornly walk on the path they're choosing so that they can eventually see the fruit of their own actions and repent, bringing it back to being, as John puts it, a sin not leading to death, which in that moment, we pray for them as we ought to. It is very important at this moment, however, that we make the clarification that John is referring to members of the body. As he said, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not people of the world. We always pray for people of the world in order that they may come to salvation and realize the truth of the gospel message. But what John is referring here when he says not to pray for somebody, he's talking about giving someone unsanctified mercy, which is constantly excusing them for an action we know is bad. John is not saying to not pray for the unsaved, and it's important that we know John clarifies that. But in a nutshell, that is the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death. Again, I can totally understand how you would see it as confusing, but I hope that clarifies it well for you. Thank you so much, Isaac, for your question. Now, this next question that we have comes from Josh. And Josh says, in regard to correcting fellow believers who are living in sin and also disassociating ourselves from believers who live in sin, how much do we correct and when do we cut ties? Well, Josh, if you would please go back and listen to my answer to Chaz's question where I address believers living in unrepentant sin and how to disassociate themselves in that regard. And also the previous question from 1 John would also address how to handle after such ties have been cut if you haven't listened to those already. But as for the rest of your question, let's get into that. How do we correct other believers living in sin? Well, firstly, we do it in love. And there isn't really a way to bring this up to someone other than to bring it up plainly. However, this isn't something we have to face alone. The Bible gives us clear direction on how to handle such a situation. In Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17, Jesus instructs us, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For those of you who don't know what Jesus means by that, um, back in the day, Gentiles were unclean to the Jewish people, and tax collectors who worked for the Gentiles were considered just as bad. So that's why Jesus is comparing that to them. It's cultural relevancy. Now, Josh, I cannot word it any better than the way Jesus worded it there in those verses, nor is there anything I really feel is needing to be expanded on those verses. It's that simple. Thank you for the question, man. This next question comes from Alex, and Alex says, In the Christian walk, which comes first, happiness or holiness? Well, first of all, great question, okay? And all these questions have been awesome so far, and I hope I'm answering them all as effectively as I possibly can. Well, Alex, I definitely would say holiness before happiness, and there's a strong reason why. Happiness is a fleeting emotion which is temporary and based ultimately on circumstance. The true thing to be desired is joy. And joy is a foundational thing. It is something that can be present in the midst of horrible circumstances. 
If you haven't listened to our recent episode on Christian suffering, I recommend you go back after this and do so. I talk about joy in the midst of extreme suffering in that episode. And of course, if you already have, you already know what I'm referring to. There are a lot of things that will take place in our Christian walk that will be completely void of anything happy. For example, if God tells you to go into a poor country where the people are nomadic tribes who live off virtually nothing so that you may minister to them, uh, you won't be happy in conditions like that. You're going to be quite miserable. Uh, The same can be said about persecutions or even God telling you to cut ties with something that leads you into sin. That's not something that is necessarily happy and can be quite painful for us. But no matter what the situation may be, Joy is something that can be had in any season. Joy, however, comes as a result of pursuing holiness. For anyone who doesn't know what holiness is, all it is is it means you're set apart. And this doesn't mean that we are somehow holier than other Christians because of certain actions that we take, but rather, holiness is something we can walk in. Jesus made us holy by the cross already, so you are set apart unto God by believing in Jesus. But you can walk in the way that is upright and holy, which comes simply from pursuing God. And as you pursue God, as you push into closer proximity to the Father, you will in turn have joy, even if your circumstances aren't happy or cheerful. So Alex, I hope that explains that well. Holiness, definitely before happiness. Thank you very much for your question. This next question comes from Kaylin. And Kaylin says, why is it that some members of the church don't support the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I can't speak for people in that regard because I am not them. If you would like to know this, then go ask people. You know, if that's something you're passionate about, go talk to them. Find out. I'm sure that there would be some people who are more than willing to share their opinions on the subject. But as for me, I can't give you the answer you're probably looking for. But hey, thank you very much for your question. This next question comes from Austin. And Austin asks, was Jesus lying in John 7 when he said he wasn't going to the Feast of Tabernacles even though he did. Okay, really great question here. To get the best understanding of what you're referring to, we're going to look at the passage. So if you guys haven't noticed by now, we get pretty serious about our Bible here at the Barefoot Bible Podcast. I definitely want to make sure that we're looking at the passages as much as we can because it's from them that we get the best understanding. So starting in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, whichever you want to call it, it says here, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go up into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So was Jesus lying in this moment when he said he wasn't going to go? No. 
Absolutely not. In fact, that would go completely against his nature. It would also mean that he sinned and thus nullify his ability to stand in our place as the new and sinless Adam. So he definitely did not lie here. But how do we know that? Well, apart from sound doctrine and theology forbidding that as a possibility, a little thinking beyond the text is required here. We know that Jesus modeled his life here on earth in a very specific format, and that format being pray, listen, act, sleep, repeat. Jesus never performed a miracle that wasn't first revealed to him by the Father in prayer. And even the towns that he visited had someone there that the Father showed him was in need. His life was built on pure obedience to God the Father and living completely detached from his personal will, relying only on the will of the Father. In this passage, we need to keep this fact in mind. What does that have to do with it? Let's look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus' brothers tell him that he should go up to the fast to be seen by all, since he does his miracles, even saying how no one works in secret if they wish to be known openly. And this response actually makes perfect sense. Jesus often talked about how he was sent to his people to accomplish a purpose and that his brothers would have known he talked about this more than anyone else. And so, as it said, even they didn't believe him, but their mindset is, if you have something to say and wish to be heard, then go speak to the masses. And that's a very practical approach to that. However, Jesus' approach to how he lived his life was completely removed from self-recognition. He wanted to bring glory to the Father and not himself. In order to do this, he had to subject himself to the Father's will, and this is why he told so many not even to mention his involvement in some of the miracles that we see throughout the Gospels. In this scenario, they see this feast as the perfect time to go and prove himself and to them as the, to the people of Israel, and they are right. That would be a wonderful time for that, but Jesus tells them why he can't go. Let's look at verse 6. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And what does that mean? Is he referring to his death? Is he referring to his resurrection, his return? Nope, none of them. He's not referring to any of those things. In fact, he's speaking of his time in that moment. I want to take a look at verse 6 in particular and what the Greek says about it because it's within the words of the manuscript we find the proper understanding of what he's saying. And so we're going to take a look at that. If you guys don't know, the New Testament manuscripts are written in Greek. It was the predominant language of the region at that time. And so we're going to look at it through that lens. When Jesus says, my time has not yet come, the word there for come is the word parastin, which means at hand, or as we would say, present. He is saying that my time isn't present, or my time isn't here. And this communicates that he's saying it is the wrong time for what they are asking, but why? Well, the clue for that is at the end of the sentence where he says, your time is always here. Specifically, let's look at the word here. The Greek word used there is the word themos, which is directly translated as ready, but it can also mean prepared. Jesus tells his brothers, your time is always ready, or your time is always prepared. And so what Jesus is saying here is that they always have the time to do as they please, but he doesn't. He says he isn't going to the feast when they want him to, because the time of him being instructed to hasn't come at that moment, or at that moment, Jesus hasn't received any instruction to go to the feast from the Father yet. And so it is safe to assume that when he later attends the feast at the temple, this is because he has been instructed by God the Father to go at the time that he went, 
instead of when his brothers wanted him to. So Jesus did not lie at that moment, so be at peace, knowing he is still the honest Jesus we know him to be. Thank you so much, Austin, for your question. The next question that we have comes from Ryan, and Ryan asks us, were Jesus and Joseph Smith brothers? Uh, no, absolutely not. They were not brothers. Um, to be honest, I am not familiar with any Mormon teaching that says anything remotely like what you say in your question here, bro. But I do know that Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan were birth brothers in heaven before Satan's rebellion, which is also a false teaching as Jesus was not created by God where Satan was. But Ryan, thank you so much for your question, man. I will definitely look into that topic and see if there's anything more out there about it just to know in case someone brings it up. Also, if you have any resources on this topic, please send them to me. You can send them to me via direct message on our Instagram at Barefoot Bible Podcast. The B's and P are capitalized. Go ahead and send me any sources you have on that because that actually really intrigues me and I would love to research it some more. But hey, man, thank you so much for asking your question and bringing a new topic to my attention at that. So this next question comes from Jessica, and Jessica says, How do you talk to other people about God and Christianity? All right, Jessica, just do it. (laughs) Bring it up. That's the easiest and the most direct way. There is never a wrong time to talk to someone about Jesus. However, there are many ways to go about the way that you bring it up. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew how we need to be wary of our environment that we are in as Christians. And this is only a reflection of the world we live in and the reality for every Christian that goes forth into the world to speak the word of God. So in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is instructing his apostles on going forth to minister to the towns of Israel. And while doing so, he tells them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So I would say, look at the situation as you are about to talk to someone about these things with someone who is not of the faith or someone who is maybe looking to become part of the faith and just make your decisions on how to approach doing so based on what you see before you. Just assess the situation again. Be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. And above anything you do, Jessica, make sure that you always do it in love. For apart from love, we have nothing. And I hope that helps you so much. I'll also be praying for you for boldness as you go out and talk to other people about God and Christianity and spread the gospel, making the name of Jesus famous. Thank you so much for your question. This next question says, I see often in the Old Testament that God tells his people that they should read his word every day. But since we are no longer under the obligation of the law, Do we still need to read every day? If not, are we sinning? So you are referencing Deuteronomy 6, where God commanded Israel to reflect on the book of the law whenever they had the chance to do so. We are not held to this commandment from Deuteronomy, however, as we are not under the law. You can read Romans 7 for further clarification on that specifically. Instead, we being made alive in the spirit through God live according to the spirit of the law not by the letter. Of course, though, there are many places in New Testament scripture that we find ordinances and principles by which we should live as Christians. 
but this is not a new law as the Torah was law. Rather, these are simply ways we ought to conduct ourselves as members of the body of Christ. While there is no explicit command in the New Testament telling us to read scripture every single day, we do have an example of such a practice to follow given by Jesus himself, and this is found in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this next part in verse 26 is specifically talking about what Christ did for the church and where we get this model from. He goes on to say, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it is from this that we know that there is an effect that takes place within us when we read and dig deep into the word of God. Things are happening for us spiritually that are going to prepare us for the next life. And Paul tells us that we are washed by the water of the word, which in turn clothes us in splendor without spot or wrinkle, and thus we are made holy and without blemish. Because of this, we ought to desire to read the word of God as much as we can. We should desire to become intimately acquainted with it more and more with each day, not because we are commanded to by letter, but because we in our spirits desire and long to be with Christ, presented as a holy and spotless bride in the world to come. Thank you so much for your question. A lot of great questions have been asked so far, and I'm so excited that I get to answer them. I also hope that you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. So moving on to the next question. The next question comes from Brady. And Brady asks, should Christians take a side in politics? Uh, In all honesty, Brady, it is my plan to do an entire episode in the future on this topic, but I will answer your question in brief. So Christians definitely should care about politics and government because politics and government directly impacts the culture, which directly intersects with the gospel as the gospel changes the culture, which will affect political decisions made by a country's citizens. So that I will encourage that we should care, we should be active in that. But for picking a side, like should I be a Republican or should I be a Democrat? Well, I would say just do whatever the Lord leads you to do and approach such situations with a biblical worldview. Christianity is not a bipartisan religion, nor is it Republican or Democrat, right or left. So on this, go with whichever way aligns best with a biblical worldview. And if in the midst of that, you end up supporting a specific political party, so be it. But as I said, I will do an entire episode on politics, specifically in my country, the United States. In that episode, I'm going to be approaching the topic biblically, of course, and address current issues the church is facing regarding politics. So be sure, everybody, to tune in for that episode when it releases sometime in the future. As for now, be on the lookout on our social media for updates concerning the show as we may be posting about future episodes and the topics that they are going to be discussing. Brady, thank you so much for your question. And moving on to our next question, which is, according to Hebrews 1... God no longer speaks through prophets. So why does the Bible talk about prophecy in the New Testament? Okay, great question here. Really great question. I'm really glad you asked. 
So there are plenty examples of New Testament prophecy and even New Testament prophets throughout New Testament scripture. And this verse in Hebrews 1, which you are referring to, which says, formerly God spoke to his people through the prophets, but now he speaks to them through his son. It is talking about the Old Testament prophets whose sole purpose was to foretell the coming of Jesus and the revealing of him as Messiah to the Israelites and to the world. The prophets no longer function or speak in that way regarding Jesus as Jesus has been revealed to the world as Messiah. And Jesus himself now speaks to us through his own personal testimony, the gospel, as to why he is the Messiah. Thus, we don't need prophets foretelling of him. However, prophets do still exist, and now with the Holy Spirit, the church as a whole has been given the gift of prophecy so that all members of the body will have the ability to prophesy, though not everyone will be prophets. So, to get a better understanding of this, let's dive into it. I want to cover the general gift of prophecy in the church first, to give you an example of what that looks like broadly in the New Testament church. And so, get ready, because for this question, we are going to be digging deep into Scripture. We're going to be going to 1 Corinthians 12, and that chapter has a lot to say. The chapter introduces us to spiritual gifts, and so we are going to be taking a look at chapter 12, probably the entire chapter. Once again, we like to dig fully into the Word here at the Barefoot Bible Podcast. And and the reason why I want to go through all these verses is not to overload you guys with Scripture, but, but chapter 12 specifically, and some of chapter 13, does mention prophecy while talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Again, my my goal with this first part of my answer is to tell you about the broad function of prophecy within the church. So here we go, starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so, real quick pause here. Prophecy is something given to us as a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Back into verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So from here, we can clearly see prophecy as one of the gifts of the spirits made active in the church. Okay, this is something that is active in the New Testament church. Moving on to verse 12. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the same spirit that gives all these other gifts is the same spirit that gives prophecy. Starting back here again in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged in the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And I, I wanted to read that section because it's talking about unity and how important each of the gifts of the Spirit are to the overall unity of the body of Christ. And I want to highlight specifically in verse 18 where it says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Right here, we get that not only will people receive the gift as God intends, but also that those receiving the gift of prophecy receive it because the Lord has ordained them to. This is something that solidifies not only prophecy being biblical, but also God's personal gifts to us as well. And so back in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So again, all gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy, function to unify the body. And this means that all gifts, including prophecy, are equally important. If the gift of prophecy was not around in the church today, the church would be suffering for it. God says that right there. God did this, as he says in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. All gifts, including prophecy, have a function. Moving on in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 
And Paul later clarifies what this more excellent way is. He goes on into chapter 13, which is, as many know, the love chapter. But he does make mention to the gifts of the Spirit and specifically prophecy in chapter 13, starting in verse 8. He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. It is important to note here that Paul is talking in future tense here regarding prophecy. If we are to take Hebrews 1 at face value, then we should assume prophecy has already passed away. But here, Paul is talking about it. Prominent member of the New Testament church, the the man responsible for writing one-third of the New Testament, he's speaking about this as if it hasn't passed away. So what does that mean? Well, it means exactly that, that it hasn't passed away. Listen, we won't need prophecy in the midst of the fullness of the presence of God. But that fullness has not yet come. So we know that prophecy has not passed away. And if that's not enough, let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, which is actually where we get the five-fold ministry from, the mantle of the New Testament prophet. Here, Paul says, And he gave, he being Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul is speaking in such a way here in verse 13 by saying, until we all attain to, meaning that we have not attained to it yet, meaning that these things have not passed away. So, yeah, man, the the New Testament is talking about prophecy as if it's still around, despite Hebrews 1, because it is still around. But as I stated at the beginning, Hebrews 1 specifically is talking about the Old Testament prophets who we no longer need them to speak to us that way because Jesus has revealed himself through the gospel. But prophecy is still active and there are still prophets And I'm not going to get into the specifics of New Testament prophets. I will cover that in a future episode, but it hasn't passed away. And I hope this answers your question well. Thank you so much for your question. And that is actually going to be the last question of the episode. Huge thank you to every single one of you who submitted your questions. This episode literally wouldn't have been possible without you. And also, a huge thank you to all of you listening. It is my absolute joy to be able to answer questions for you guys. I really enjoyed this episode, and it is my hope that you did as well. I would love to hear some feedback from you as my listeners. And so with that said, I will be posting on our social media about this episode. So please, whichever you are, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, go and comment, leave your feedback on those posts on whichever platform you use. Let me know if you enjoyed this and if this is something you'd like to see me continue doing in the future more often. And maybe a Q&A done over a specific topic in Christianity as there are many topics. If you'd like to see a specific Q&A about that, 
I'm even willing to do a specific Q&A for unbelievers, for people from the outside looking in that have questions about Christianity, whether it's people from another religion or even an atheist or a skeptic, I will take your questions. So make sure you go on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, leave some feedback about this episode on social media. And so once again, thank you so much for listening. God bless you and have a great week. I'm your host, Arturo Moreno, and I will catch you next time on the Barefoot Bible Podcast. Go in peace, guys. I love y'all.